In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Following the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption And the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from the Great White North And his studio beneath the stairs Here's Richard Welcome once again to Strange Planet, and we're going to go madly off in all directions over the next 45 minutes. I'd love to do that, just wherever the conversation leads. And uh, one of my favorite people to talk to about space and science and technology and futurism and even philosophy and history, Micah Hanks is a, a writer, podcaster, Longtime advocate for scientific research into unidentified aerial phenomena. He's a, an affiliate member of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies and is creator and co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Debrief. And you can read some fantastic articles there at thedebrief.org. It's a new site that examines uh, science and disruptive technology, uh, which is uh, closely followed 
developments related to the U.S. government's collection and evaluation of information related to UAP since its launch in December 2020. And uh, he's the author of The UFO Singularity, Magic Mysticism and the Molecule, Reynolds Mansion, An Invitation to the Past, The Ghost Rockets, Lost Secrets of the Gods. Micah, welcome back. How are you? Richard, always great to be here with you and happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays. And it's been too long. My fault. I think the last time we were discussing off air was uh, when we talked on, on Coast to Coast. And I always enjoy, uh, I could talk to you for hours and hours. And one day we're going to do it in person. You're going to come up to Toronto and uh, we're going to have a, uh, a couple of adult beverages and, and talk. That is mandatory. I look forward to it. All right. So uh, just... Tell people a little bit about, uh, I mentioned some things about the debrief.org, but just kind of give us a tour uh, for those who have not been to the uh, the website, because they can also subscribe to the newsletter. Indeed, yes, and I send out that newsletter myself every single week, even on holidays, and uh, our holiday roundup this uh, last Thanksgiving down here stateside was quite an addition. We'll talk about that a little later. But uh, The Debrief is a website that I launched with my co-founders, Tim McMillan, who is a former law enforcement officer and investigative reporter, also a science reporter, MJ Benias. Uh, the three of us put our heads together back during the pandemic and said, let's change the way that we report on disruptive technology, you know, science, space, physics, but also the UAP subject, which, you know, the artists formerly known as UFOs. Uh, I have followed that subject, as you know, and as you have for many, many years, but there was a certain legitimization, I think, that began to occur in 2017, and with the renewed interest, not only by the public, and gradually we're beginning to see scientific organizations, even NASA weighing in on this subject, really, I think a focal point of this discussion in recent years has been the military and its interest in its collection of information about this. And fundamentally, with relation to that subject, our effort was to try and bring the UFO subject out of the water cooler section uh, on your various science news websites and to bring this over into a serious area of discussion, the likes of which you'd expect to see with any other field or discipline. And I think that for our own part, with our site, we have helped to do that, but also encouraged other sites to do the same. And we continue to report. And frankly, we aim to be leaders in reporting on that subject but really being only one of the many subjects that we cover every week on our on our website and the various different beats that we follow. And so, as you mentioned, of course, I do this newsletter, and uh, we focused on that subject for the Thanksgiving edition with a question, a curious mystery, my friend, the case of the missing ODNI report, because, you know, we're overdue already for the next installment of UAP investigations and a report on that from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Right, which was due the end of October, and it's late. It's it's very, very late for an important date. Where is it? What's happening? What's the holdup? That's a really good question, and a lot of us have been trying to figure that out, and I've gotten a diverse range of different responses uh, from officials I've reached out to. Uh, I reached out first and foremost to the Pentagon because once the report was late on arrival, there had been some pre-reporting from the New York Times, and they had given the indication from intelligence officials who were somewhat in the know that, hey, you know, this new report... We've got different leadership, and of course, the last time you and I spoke, Richard, I think that it was the AIMSOG, and it has since changed names again, which it's now the All-Domain, uh, let's see here, All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. I think that's what they're calling it now. They make these names virtually unpronounceable, but hey, at least they're looking into this stuff. That's the good side of it. And so uh, with the new leadership, 
the attitude toward this phenomena has changed somewhat. That's the impression that we're getting. Julian Barnes, the New York Times reporter, had essentially said, don't expect to hear a whole lot about fantastic, you know, technologies, the five observables, you know, these fast uh, accelerations, turning on a dime, you know, no propulsion systems. He says it's going to be more things like aer- you know, aerial clutter, balloons, this sort of thing. I guess the kinds of things that really back in the day were pejoratives, balloons, swamp gas. So that wasn't a very hopeful indication of things yet to come. But when the report was several days late, I reached out to the Pentagon myself. They got back in touch and they said, we won't comment on the contents of that report before it comes out. But our stance is we do take UAP sightings seriously. We do take it seriously that military personnel have these encounters with these objects, whatever they may be. I figured by then it was just going to be a few days before we finally saw the report. And would you believe it? Here it is, Richard. Uh, I mean, we're, we're headed toward Christmas. We still have not seen this report. And so now I'm getting indications. I've reached out to the ODNI office. Their folks told us, listen, you know, it's coming, but we can't say when, and we can't tell you anything about it until it gets here. But I've spoken with other reporters who have said, at this point, we wonder if we'll see it by year's end or if this report is even going to come out, which to me is a problem because it was mandated by Congress that we're supposed to see these updates. So now I'm beginning to be concerned about really how seriously the government does take this and whether they're going to be fully willing to report on what they have found if they deliver these reports to Congress, you know, when and if the public sees it, what can we even expect at this point? So it's a little bleak, but that's what we covered in the newsletter. And I do hope that at least at some point in the future, we'll get another update on the findings from the Pentagon with relation to the ongoing UAP situation, which is very much still developing. Last point, too. You know, early next year, we're supposed to be seeing, of course, the passing of the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the largest defense spending you know, bill which kind of lays out the focus for the Pentagon and the DOD's operations each fiscal year. And in the new language for the uh, fiscal year 2023 bill, we already see a whole lot of UAP-related language. So sooner or later, with Congress continuing to focus on this, we're going to have to hear something. I just wonder if it's going to be before the end of this year. Is is some of that money um, tied to um, a timely disclosure of, you know, these reports, isn't it? Some of that money tied to that's like, it's conditional. You know, if you want this money, you gotta, you gotta be more forthcoming. I do believe so. Uh, in fact, they're, they're hoping to try and institute uh, protections for those whistleblowers might be a term for it, but essentially people who come forward who may have worked in sectors of government where they had information about this. And in an effort to maybe really an assurance on broader transparency related to the UAP subject, because, again, we've all heard for decades, really, about the idea of crash retrievals and all these kinds of things. The notion that our military here stateside may have collected information about this or even physical wreckage and kept that hidden. Uh, Aspects of what we're now looking at with this this, uh, draft legislation that, again, if this language passes with the bill – Uh, It will not only look to protect people who come forward and talk about that, but they also want to look and and, and evaluate any past instances that seem to represent these kinds of acquisitions, we might say. And naturally, what comes to mind, if you actually read in the language of the bill, it goes back to around 1947. And so they're saying, you know, from, from 1947 to the present, we want to know about things that have been learned and acquired. What happened that year? I mean, Roswell, of course. So it seems that those who are drafting this language 
are now getting up to speed on the history of this subject, which to me is very important. I think it's actually incumbent upon us if we really want to understand the UAP issue to understand its history. And I want lawmakers to be looking at the history and incorporating that into what they are now mandating government to reveal about this as we go forward. Well, the um, the, the, the hearing that they had, was it in June, late June, mm-hmm. um, which was like the first time in decades, right, that they'd, they'd had a, a hearing on this. Uh, and I, I can't remember the uh, individual who stood up there uh, and answered questions and, and had, he, he at least pretended, I don't know <laughs> uh, if he did or not, but he pretended he had no knowledge of things like UAP incursions over nuclear sites, like he'd never heard of it before. I mean, that was a major disappointment. He offered nothing. It was just the same, you know, uh, oh, these are drones or these are balloons or whatever. It's, it's the same old song and dance we got. Indeed, yes. Scott Bray and Ronald Moultrie, the speakers there, uh, I believe the gentleman that you are referring to would have been Moultrie in that instance because he'd been asked by Congressman Gallagher about some of these incursions over strategic sites that occurred back in the 1960s and 70s. And I often like to point out to people there's a book that was written a number of decades ago, and I recently spoke with one of the co-authors of that, Barry Greenwood. That book, originally titled Clear Intent, it was re-released, I think, with the title The UFO Cover-Up. And that was the main focus of that book. I mean, they had used the Freedom of Information Act to appeal to different government agencies and to try and glean information about these incidents involving UAP. And some of the ones that were really coming to light there in the mid-1970s when they began this research uh, had involved UFO sightings. They still called them UFOs back then, Richard. But these incidents that were occurring over these strategic facilities along the northern tier – And to me, this is pretty concerning for a couple of reasons. One, these, of course, were uh, strategic missile launch sites. In some of these instances, there were even cases where the ICBM launch facilities were taken offline temporarily in conjunction with the appearances of these UAP. But they were right up there along the United States-Canadian border. And again, there have been reporters in Canada now, uh, really, I mean, for the last couple of years, Daniel Otis is one who's written for Vice, who who are noting that this same issue pilot encounters with UAP, uh, you know, a, a lack of transparency on this issue. It's occurring in countries like Canada, too. So really, to me, these are important for all of North America, but extend that to the entire world, too, because I speak with uh, pilots, researchers, and others in you know the United Kingdom and Australia, not just the English-speaking world. As you know, I've spent some time in Brazil in recent months, yes. uh, having met with former lawmakers down there in Brazil, the UFO research community down there in Brazil, and others who also are very aware of not only you know the interest in this among the public, the military's long history of involvement with this there in Brazil as well as here in the United States, but also the ongoing reality of the UAP phenomenon. So I say this is a global issue, and it's one that we absolutely need more transparency on. We have to really turn our best minds toward it, which again, I'm very glad to see that NASA is getting involved. You know, right now, as you and I speak, there is a current study underway where NASA is finally looking. They're not looking at any classified information, but they're really looking seriously at the UAP subject. So I have high hopes, but, you know, I won't hold my breath. So one of the um, articles on thedebrief.org has to do with this recent spate of uh, pilot sightings of UAPs. And um, uh, Mick West, who I've interviewed, he has a a website. Is it called Metabunk, I think? Mm -hmm. And... um, they were trying to find, of course, a more prosaic explanation for what these pilots were reporting on and seeing in these encounters. And 
Uh, I don't know. It, it seems as if Elon Musk's satellite uh, Starlink system is becoming the new swamp gas. Now everything is, oh, that was Elon Musk's Starlink that you saw. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that's a really great way to characterize this or to frame this discussion, Richard, because again, I guess throughout time, it was first weather balloons and then swamp gas and then drones and now Starlink. There's always going to be a Here's what you've really seen. Here's what you've really experienced. The reason in our recent article that Chrissy Newton there at the debrief and I did, the reason that that article focuses more on the plausible explanations for some of these pilot sightings is twofold. One, we thought that uh, in terms of accurate reporting, we needed to tell that side of the story because an earlier report that we had done focused simply on the pilot sightings and you know interpretations of that. And again, kudos to Mick West and uh, some of the users like Flarky over there on the Metabunk forum, because they diligently, when they were able to get video from these pilots, they used uh, astronomical software and other resources to, to me, to my satisfaction, demonstrate that some, some of these sightings directly correlate with the position, the movement, and, and other circumstances where Starlink would have been visible under unique circumstances. Now, a lot of people point out in the videos, that doesn't look like Starlink. And I think that that's the most important point right there. No, in these instances, these pilots saw things under unique visual circumstances, which the data clearly showed these were Starlink satellites, but which under those circumstances, under those visual conditions, it did not seem evident that at that time. And these experienced pilots, by the way, who are used to seeing things like satellites, they've seen them almost every night during these night flights. And yet these conditions presented a different kind of visual stimulus, we might say. Uh, a lot of people were offended by that. And they're saying, you guys speak for all the pilots now. But again, you got to keep in mind, you've spoken with Mick West, so have I, mm -hmm. or communicated with him at least. And I'd like to actually have him on a show at some point too and continue that dialogue because Mick is very obviously interested in the potential, the potential that there are some less easily resolved UAP reports. And he's further saying right now, if we can weed out the things that aren't UAP, it's going to help us to narrow down the, you know, the more exotic possibilities. But further, he says, even in the instances where these pilots are seeing things that we can identify, these constitute challenges to aviation safety. And across the board, everyone that I spoke with in this article, from Mick West to Ben Hansen again and Brittany Barbieri, um, an aviation professional who I've you know followed his work for a long time, Dr. Todd Curtis of AviationSafe.com, every one of the experts, Ryan Gray's former fighter pilot, you know, who's now a chair with the AIAA and their UAP community, all these pilots were saying, "Look, we've got to listen to." Well, I'm sorry, all these professionals, some of them pilots, they're saying we need to listen to pilots, we need to try to find ways to have better reporting systems for the pilots when they see UAP. And we need to recognize that when pilots see things they can't identify, whether they are bona fide unknowns or things that they don't immediately recognize, but which have plausible explanations, if they become distracted pilots, it's a potential safety issue. And that is the resounding commonality between all these positions. So again, that's the other big reason. In addition to you know reporting accurately and telling the whole story, we see a safety aviation, uh, an aviation safety issue here that has to be addressed. So lastly, I reached out to the FAA as well. And although I wasn't really satisfied with the response they gave me, uh, I got to hand it to them. They were at least a while back kind enough to give me, to my knowledge, the first uh, official confirmation that they do collect reports of UAP. They denied it for years. 
So I'll toss them a bone. They did admit to me that they collect that information, Richard. And again, I realize it's not easy to have to try and account for all these numerous factors that you know, pilots face. So again, it's an ongoing developing situation, but we continue to report on it there at the debrief, and you can expect more in the weeks ahead. Micah Hanks, editor-in-chief, the debrief.org, back with more of our conversation right after these. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time to redefine Reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And Micah Hanks is here, writer, podcaster, co-founder, editor-in-chief of thedebrief.org. I want to ask you about, this is a uh, more of a technology physics type question, but this is something that you cover uh, on the uh, debrief.org, science, tech, space, defense, aerospace, UAPs. Uh, and that has to do with acoustic levitation. Um, they're now claiming, or researchers, that they're able to levitate small objects with sound. And as soon as I read that story, I'm thinking immediately, I'm thinking about uh, the Coral Castle, and I'm thinking about you know these seemingly fantastical claims that the pyramids were also used, um, you know, or, or were built using levitation technology. Tell me about this story. Well, you know, I've been to Coral Castle, and I find it to be an incredible location. I I do think that it was very uh, unique and intelligent principles of leverage that he used to construct that monument. But I got to say, I mean, there's not really anything quite like it, is there? And having stood there in the hot Florida sun and, and visited that location, it's well worth the visit for anyone who wants to travel there. And again, I guess that's probably my interest in reporting on the idea of levitation. Although, when we're talking about levitation in the real sense... And I'll preface this as we're getting into this article by just mentioning that those sci-fi concepts that we first hear about in, you know, pulp magazines or in novels or in sci-fi films, which we start seeing real world corollaries for, that's a really interesting area of research that we cover with the debrief because I think it's important to kind of look at where science fiction meets science fact. Uh, So propulsion technologies and these kind of things, which may even have applications with relation to UAP. That's something that we really try to cover a lot. When it comes to levitation, again, if we're thinking about things like anti-gravity, the the connection there is pretty obvious. But this, of course, has mostly to do with what we would, I guess, call acoustic levitation or sound levitation. It involves scientists with the University of Technology in Sydney and also researchers with the University of New South Wales. And essentially, they have developed a new method that allows them to fine-tune the control of particles using ultrasonic waves. And this is a pretty standard method that they would employ when it comes to acoustic levitation. But And in fact, actually, there's even more recent developments with regard to this than in the next couple of days we'll probably have an update about. Uh, this report involves a study, I think, that was published back in probably September or October. But they essentially were using the, the long-tested principles of acoustic levitation 
to fine tune the way that this can be done and in a new way that essentially allows this. If you've got something that's very small and that can't easily be turned or held or manipulated, think about like an insect leg or something along those lines, which in the laboratory, touching it might even destruct or, or cause destruction or, or at least damage to that object. If you're able to hold it in place with acoustic uh, waves and you can manipulate it, this could potentially allow new insights into the study of these you know, very tiny objects. And there are a lot of applications, even outside just research studies, this might have applications also in various different industries. And that's what these researchers are essentially saying, that this new discovery, they call it a breakthrough in sound levitation, uh, probably is going to allow a diverse range of new developments and industrial applications. And it all kind of focuses on the idea of acoustic radiation force, which I found fascinating. When we think about forces, we either think about Star Wars or maybe we think about, uh, you know, the, the four fundamental forces. Here we're talking about something that goes all the way back to at least the 1930s. Really, I think that one of the very first to look at this was Lewis King. And he studied the suspension of particles in a field basically of a sound wave and how acoustic radiation force, as he called it, being exerted against these particles could suspend that object. And then it gets kind of built onto in the 1950s. A little later, Lev Gorkov uh, was the first to sort of synthesize all those earlier studies and then put together a mathematical basis for the phenomenon. And it's important to understand that history because that's exactly what laid the foundation for this new innovation. So no, they aren't yet able to take huge blocks, you know, and they couldn't replicate the construction of the pyramids, which, you know, again, aspects of that architecturally are still a mystery, even, you know, to me. I don't I don't think we've quite figured that out. I don't think we could rebuild the pyramids with the te uh, this technology, but microfine observations of objects in the laboratory, that's definitely going to be a whole lot easier. And indeed, it is a breakthrough because of that. Right. Yeah. It, like the, the early, early stages that uh, of of using, um, I guess, an oscillating wave to levitate a very, very small object. And you mentioned back in the 1930s, and, and I, I guess the limitations were it had to be a very symmetrical object, and now they're taking it a step further. So it's it could be an asymmetrical object. Uh, you could be, um, you know, suspending that object in space. And if, as you say, if it's a very fragile uh, object and you don't want to handle it, that, it's it's the very it's baby steps, uh, and we're seeing this in other areas as well. So, for example, now scientists talking about, and this is also at thedebrief.org, uh, creating or simulating a black hole in a laboratory. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's and I got to give kudos to Chris Plain, our lead science writer, who did this uh, piece for us the other day. Uh, and I think the most important thing about this is that when we talk about the simulation of a black hole, we aren't creating, I guess, what you'd call a strangelet, a little tiny, uh, you know, super dense, uh, gravitationally dense hole, or actually it's an object. Again, Stephen Hawking wrote that uh, black holes ain't so black. Uh, really, what we're talking about is an object that is so gravitationally dense that it captures light, and therefore astronomers have a hard time seeing them. And due to their difficulty to visualize, the best we can try and do is study the you know changes that occur in space uh, around a black hole. But if we can model that and we can simulate it in a laboratory, we can learn a lot of things. And something that's really interesting about this study is that one of the predictions that Hawking had made, which has to do with what's now known as Hawking radiation, this seemed to have been partly confirmed 
in this study, and it involved essentially a chain of atoms uh, that they observed. I'll quote briefly here from uh, Chris's article. Employing a chain of atoms, the team was able to generate the conditions of a black hole's event horizon, again, that boundary layer beyond which basically our knowledge of physics breaks down, right, Richard? Uh, But they simulate the black hole's event horizon where they found that fine-tuning the movement of electrons that were observed leaping from atom to atom along this chain caused certain properties to kind of vanish, essentially. And so the researchers produced changes in the fields of these electrons, and they noted that the overall temperature of their simulated event horizon would rise, okay? And with that rising heat, the exciting result had been that that heat uh, produced radiation, and that being a match for the theoretical conditions along the, uh, the, uh, the event horizon of the black hole that Hawking first pre- predicted and hence called Hawking radiation. So although we have not produced a black hole in the lab, this simulation, what it does is it recreates the conditions along the event horizon, which seem to help now confirm Hawking's theoretical idea of the so-called Hawking radiation. And again, you see a lot of this in science. At the debrief, uh, we are always reporting on new science discoveries like this, where a theoretical principle or an observation or a hypothesis that's put forward by a you know, maybe one of the lost great scientists from Einstein to Hawking and even outside physics, you know, many different scientists in a variety of disciplines. As people continue that work, we often see confirmation. And we probably see this, you know, the most with Einstein. I mean, there is still a tremendous amount of interest in Einstein's theories and the confirmation of those theories and the ongoing discoveries that continue to help affirm how right and how truly genius he was. You know, Hawking, I'd put in that camp too. And here again, we see the confirmation posthumously. He may have left this world and gone into the ever after, you know, beyond the event horizon, I guess, in this case, Richard. (laughs) But but these new studies are showing that he was right. And again, we're now able to model and pretty accurately, I think, confirm his predictions about that Hawking radiation. And uh, we're going to head into a break. I'll get you to answer this on the other side. But the the hope is that this experiment is going to maybe lead the way to solving well in the article it's called you know the, the holy grail of science unit uniting the general relativity and quantum theory i'll get you to explain what that's all about when we come back micah hanks is my guest the co-founder and editor and chief of the debris the debrief <laughs> sorry editor in chief of the debrief.org Welcome back, Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Micah Hanks is with us, thedebrief.org. So we were talking about uh, the, uh, the, the simulation of a, a black hole in a lab, how physicists are, are hoping that this might help them solve the holy grail of science, that is uniting uh, Einstein's general relativity theory and quantum theory. Now, that's above my pay grade. What, would, what does that mean and what would it mean for humanity? I'm not sure that- yeah, I'm not sure that uh, it's it's even within my pay grade, and I'm by no means an expert, but I mean, I do read a lot about physics, and I'm fascinated with this. And, you know, many who even just have, you know, read some popular physics books will know that when Isaac Newton observed, for instance, you know, an apple falling from a tree, right? And and the way that these observations and calculations about, you know, mass and about the, you know, the, the way that 
fundamental reality works. Those things work to a point. And we still think about Newtonian physics, but Einstein kind of picks up and he has a whole different perspective on things. Relativity really doesn't rewrite or upend Newton's observations. I mean, many of those are still applicable. But Einstein said, and this is important, he said, I, I didn't expect that my observations would be the final word by any means. Now, when we get into the quantum world, what Einstein showed us about gravity, what Einstein taught us about the mechanics of the universe, I mean, it really broadened our understanding and it really kind of widened our field of view, we might say, beyond what Newton first gave us. But quantum mechanics, rather than being a further widening of that aperture, it's kind of like this strange, kind of like a silhouette. Like imagine if you walked by the wall and your shadow didn't quite match the rest of your body. And you're like, whose shadow am I seeing here? What I mean by that is that the quantum world does not seem to really necessarily obey the same rules of gravity and everything that Einstein and Newton would have observed. And so trying to unite what happens on the microscopic scale with those things that we observe in the physics of the macroscopic has always been a problem. Hawking, when he wrote about this, had even said, look, you know, we may have to just settle for the idea that there is, rather than being a grand unified theory, and of course, you know, Hawking, like so many other physicists in his lifetime, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be able to focus on the discovery of a, of a theory of everything, a unified theory, but he never found it. And I know that must be frustrating for scientists to, you know, spend their life searching for something and never find it. People say this to me about UFOs all the time. They're like, you know, are you going to be okay if you never solve this mystery? And I'm like, well, look, I wouldn't be the first person in the, you know, pursuit of a scientific mystery who didn't get the ultimate answers before, you know, I finally passed from this mortal realm. But coming back to uniting these theories, Hawking had even said, and he wrote this in A Brief History of Time, we may have to settle for partial theories. A partial theory that explains the quantum elements, and then a partial theory that explains everything else in the world, you know, ideas which build upon what Newton and especially what Einstein have given us. But now some are saying that in the eventual sense, yeah, we we will be able to unite the the relativistic world of Einstein and the quantum world. And so studies like this where we're able to confirm those kinds of theories that were proposed decades ago by Hawking observations that have been built onto in recent days, you know, current understanding and modeling of physics, observations that are helped along even further by the incredible, the very impressive capabilities of the James Webb Space Telescope. And just look at those images. You don't have to know anything about physics to know that those images are incredible. They are giving us an unprecedented view of space-time and the cosmos. All these tools in our toolkit indeed over time, and so many great scientists out there working on this, they probably are moving closer and closer, and in fact, Richard, closer than ever to finally uniting the two worlds of physics, the, the physical world as we experience it in the everyday, and the quantum world where things get strange, the world of spooky action at a distance, the, the world where things don't make as much sense as they do in our observable reality. And once we can unite those two worlds, Again, maybe a unified theory actually will come into existence, the likes of which Hawking wasn't sure we'd ever find. Well, and and the, the this quantum theory, you know, this idea of subatomic particles existing in a, a before they're measured, before they're observed, existing as a as a as a wave, as a as a field of uh, infinite potentiality, uh, and we're made of particles. Uh, so then we too 
exist in a, as a, f- a field of uh, un, uh, infinite uh, potentiality. I mean, that, that I think ultimately will, will open a lot of doors in terms of our understanding of the paranormal and perhaps even UAPs and what they really are. Well, certainly. I mean, it's, it's unquestionable that, I mean, UAP, some UAP represent a technology and so all the physics stuff that we report on at the debrief and the kinds of things that you and I, and thank you for that, by the way, spending time talking about this, these are not only going to unite our understanding of the disparate elements of physics that exist on their own little islands right now, but put UAP up there on an island too. If they be technology, and I do believe they are, based on the observations, based on the, technica- you know, the technical capabilities that these objects display, which military personnel have described, I mean, radar jamming, acceleration, all these kinds of things, even more bizarre than that, which we could discuss another time. Maybe next time we have one of these conversations because I always look forward to them. But again, we're going to have to understand the physics first before we can really unravel what these things are doing. But once we do and we move closer to replicating that technology, I wonder sometimes, Richard, are we going going to get to a point where these things finally say, okay, you know what? They're close enough to what we can do. Now's the time. And if a, if a contact event occurs... You know, what next? Maybe we should be thinking in terms of contact initiatives. Uh, What is this technology? What is this intelligence behind it? And how do we communicate? How do we relate to that? We're going to get to a point of reckoning with that, probably. Mike, last order of business. I want to ask you about uh, this National UFO Historical Records Center uh, that is going to be, um, I guess, constructed or unveiled, rather, in, in New Mexico in the coming years. What's it all about? Well, this is an effort spearheaded by my good friend, David Marler. And, uh, you know, David's already been collecting tremendous amounts of historical information about UAP for many years. Uh, Currently, he has on loan the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies files. He's got the old National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena or NICAP files. He's got some of the old Blue Book files, a number of government files related to this, historical records and documentation from private collections of the guy's who have really led the, the the field, I think, in terms of historical study of UAP. I mentioned Barry Greenwood earlier, but Jan Aldrich, so many others. The accumulation of all these files lends to a couple of problems over time. One is that, hey, you know, you start running out of space. But the other one, too, is, you know, it's great if one guy's got a central, you know, location where all these files can be accessed. But with this digital era in which we exist in, I mean, isn't it incumbent upon us to make those files available online too, so that people all over the world, even those who aren't able to travel, can can come together and they can read this important history of this subject. So that's what David and the team are now working to do. I was very proud to, to, uh, to be able to be the first major outlet, I guess. We're not really a major outlet. I wouldn't say the debrief is is growing, but in in terms of being a news outlet that has actually covered this rather than just a blog or something, we were the first to report on this. And that just after David made the announcement at the International UFO Congress this year where he and I were both speakers. I couldn't be more excited, Richard. This is a serious development because of all the things that I study, I'm not a scientist. I'm very interested in science and the history of science. And I talk about it. I write about it daily. But my favorite subject, I guess, is UFOs. That's the thing that every morning I wake up, I'm reading about. Every night before I go to bed, I'm reading about. You know, I'm talking about it when you and I are on the microphone, and I talk about it on my own podcast, the Micah Hanks program. To know this subject, you got to know, like any subject, it's history. 
David Marler and the team are doing truly incredible work, and I support their effort wholeheartedly. And in fact, their website's now up, National UFO Historical Records Center. So it's in UFO. R-H-C, or uh, H-R-C, rather, I guess, uh, .org. But again, if you go online and do a search for the National UFO Historical Records Center, uh, you can learn all about it. And, you know, they are in a fundraising effort right now because their hope is to be able to acquire this new facility, move these contents into it, acquire additional collections, and provide a home, finally, for the history of this subject, which may be of benefit to military studies, may be of benefit to studies like the current one underway with NASA, certainly of interest and of benefit to historical researchers of this phenomenon like me who write about it all the time. So I applaud Mr. Marler. He is fantastic. And I hope that indeed uh, in the coming days, we'll have some more exciting updates about that. Well, it's a, a, an appropriate place, New Mexico, obviously. That's <laughs> Micah Hanks, editor-in-chief of The Debrief, thedebrief.org. You can subscribe to the newsletter there that comes out weekly. And, of course, the uh, Micah Hanks program available wherever you get your podcast. Micah, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. One of the best interviewers I know. Thank you, Richard. Let's do it again soon. We will.